Good evening. I'm Sarah, one of the pastors here at Hope, and I want to welcome you to worship along with the worship team and Ben, and of course, those of you joining us online as well. I'm glad that you're in worship with us this evening. Tonight, we are beginning a new sermon series after Easter called Just Emotions. And here at Hope, we're going to take a look at some big emotions that all of us face. And we're going to recognize that one, our emotions, they are a gift from God. Our emotions are actually a gift from God. They make us human. They help us bear the image of God. God, uh, as expressed throughout scriptures, he felt emotions towards his creation. And, And our emotions are given to us as a gift for a reason. They often serve a good purpose, like helping us to be creative, helping us to be kind or generous or loyal, and even emotions that we don't think or associate with good, like anger and grief. Oftentimes, those emotions are connected to experiences or truths that are good. God gave us our emotions as a gift, but sin, unfortunately, can distort our emotions and what is health, take what's something that's healthy and make it into something that is unhealthy. So Rick Warren, um, in his online Daily Hope journal, he rightly points out that, that sin, what it can do to our emotions, it can lead us down to like two extremes. And one extreme is called emotionalism. And emotionalism, he describes this way, is the only thing that matters in life. Emotions are the only things that matters in life. It's how you feel, not what you think or what's right or wrong. And with emotionalism, everything in life is based on your emotions, and emotions actually control your life. And now you got to swing to the other side, and he describes the other extreme as being stoicism. Uh, We've probably heard this word uh, one too many times in our upper Midwest area, right? Stoicism. Stoicism, uh, a lot of us can probably relate to this one. It is often valued here in our culture, upper Midwest culture, in our workplace, in our home. And, And Warren states, he describes stoicism this way. Stoicism says feelings aren't important at all. And the only things that matter are your intellect and your will. And Christians who follow this approach downplay their emotions. So during our sermon series, we're going to be looking at all these different emotions that we face. We're going to be looking at some big emotions that all of us face. And we're going to be digging into scripture for God's guidance, for his good word on how these emotions are to be healthy and what purpose they serve in our life. Uh, Today we're talking about love, and Ben got us started off with a great, great scripture from 1 John chapter 4, that uh, God is love. And because the Bible says that God is love, I think love is the right one to kick us off tonight. But before we dive in, let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we give you thanks and praise this evening that we can gather together as your people freely to worship you and to hear your word, to invite your Holy Spirit in. We ask for you to come to speak a good word to us, to encourage us in life and in faith in you. We give this time to you, Lord. We ask you to speak. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So love. Love is often associated with warm, fuzzy feelings, right? Love is often associated with 
feelings um, and, and actual like what you feel inside that warm feel that you often feel. In Greek philosophy, because we experience love in many different ways, in Greek philosophy there are actually seven different words to describe the many ways in which you and I experience love. That's how, I mean, when God is described as love, it should not be a surprise that there are many different ways that we experience love in this world. But in the New Testament, there are four that the New Testament writers primarily use, right? They use these four. I'm going to briefly explain them. The first one is philia, which is that warmth, that affection or attachment or friendliness that you feel towards uh, your neighbors, towards your friends, towards your family sometimes. And then eros is, is more that attraction, that passion kind of love. Storge is the other one that you use, and storge is that loyalty, um, some of us in our family, you could uh, describe it as like that unconditional loyalty and love that you have in a family, right? Like, like blood is thicker than water, right? <laughs> that kind of loyalty and love. And then there's agape. And agape is described as selfless, universal. It's often the one that's associated with how God loves us and all of his creation. So we have those four types of love, philia, eros, storos, storge, and agape. And when we talk about these emotions in the New Testament, there are examples given of ways that it's good and ways that it's not so good. One example of what happens when emotions, especially love, goes awry, and I don't think it's like a good picture of love is, well, the best example I have is, are my two dogs. Max and Millie are their names, and they are uh, l so lovable. They're fluffy little Bernadoodles, and they're big Bernadoodles. Who am I kidding? Um, they're 85-pound massive chunks of love, and they love people, and they love all things, and they, they, uh, we call them aggressively loving in their love. And what I mean by this is, you know, our boys, they, they love these dogs, and they squeeze them really hard, but these dogs, they squirm because they don't want to be squished, right, away from, from our boys, and, and then they find their favorite toys the first thing in the morning, and what they do is when they find their toys, they get excited, and they play tug with their toys like they're supposed to, but once a month, there is a box that's delivered to our house that's filled with new toys and treats for them. And they know what this box is, what it smells like, what it looks like. And as soon as we get it, like they are jumping up and down in front of me or my husband or the boys. And they're actually pushing each other against each other because they can't, they love these toys and these treats and they can't wait. And so what they do is as we are opening the box, they are just salivating. They're so excited. And then, and then we get them out. And, and one dog, Max, the puppy, he gets his toy, and when he gets his toy, he immediately runs off with his toy to his favorite bed, and he just starts destroying the whole thing, and there's fluff everywhere, and he loves it. He's just so happy, his tail's wagging the entire time. And then there's our other dog, Millie, and Millie's the older dog, and, and she, she takes her toy, her tail's wagging, she's just ex as excited, but instead of destroying hers right away, she doesn't want to share her toys, she just loves it so much. And so what she does is she takes that toy, she sits by the door, and as soon as we open the door, she runs outside, she chews it for a little while, and then she digs a hole, and she hides it so that Max can't find it. Well, just this morning, the snow has melted, and one of those toys came 
to the surface, right? And Max found one of these toys that she hid from one of the previous months. And, and he has it in his mouth, and he's so excited. He's wagging his tail, and he's about to destroy it. Well, Millie's going to have no, none of that. So she distracts him. She takes it, and she goes to exit again. <laughs> they love, love the, their toys and their treats. But this kind of love, it's extreme, right? This is where emotionalism takes over. They are so consumed by their emotion that they consume the object of their emotion. Like, they actually destroy it. Like, it's not healthy. It's not good. Now, they're just dog toys, and they're serving a purpose. But, I think, but when I think of people, we too can be like that in our love. What I mean this is, is, is this. We see love played out in all of its forms when it gives way to sin, when it gives way to emotionalism, right, is this extreme sort of love where, let's take philia for a moment, that becomes an over-attachment, an over-attachment to things, to peoples, right? And what ends up happening is that that emotionalism in philia, it erodes and destroys relationships. And this is how I often hear it described, how I even experience it when, when somebody uh, is just, they give over to their emotions of, of being attached to someone or something, right? And, and they, they're described as overbearing or it's too much or they're hovering or I said no or I didn't want that and they just completely disregarded it. I had a boundary and they just walked all over it, right? And then Eros, it, that, that one that's supposed to be about passion, it erodes to lust and objectification. And Storge, which is supposed to be about loyalty, it turns into dysfunctional family dynamics and, and sometimes even abuse because our emotions are leading us. And when our emotions are the number one thing and that's what we're feeding over and over and we don't think about what's right and wrong and we don't think about what is good, it can lead to some extreme behavior and the breakdown of relationships. Now we go all the way to the other end, to stoicism. Stoicism. Now if we give in to stoicism, where love is concerned, that leads to paths where things like healthy attachment to other people and things, attraction and loyalty, these things are rejected. And we get songs like Miley Cyrus's, I can buy myself flowers, right? Like, like I'm joking, obviously. But, but like there's this rejection. There's this rejection. And, and a starting of a lack of empathy and, and even selfishness. And this willful like self-reliance. You don't need anyone or anything. And you're going to manage your emotions all on your own. They don't serve a purpose. You put on a straight face and you keep marching forward. What does that really look like in our day-to-day -day life? Well, if you're like me, after you start reading heartbreaking headline after heartbreaking headline in the news, it looks like emotionally distancing yourself from that and saying things like, eh, God's got it. There's nothing I can do anyway. And you just distance yourself from it. You're not going to worry about it. Or when a loved one says something incredibly hurtful toward you. And, and instead of allowing yourself to recognize that was hurtful, 
and maybe dealing with that hurt. Instead, you say, you know what? They said some hurtful things, but words, they really aren't that hurtful. They didn't didn't actually hurt me, so I'm going to shove that under a rug, forget about it, and keep walking forward. And that leads to some very difficult dynamics and relationships. So what is love really about? What is its purpose? How can we walk in it in a healthy way? And what shape should it take on? Well, in 1 Corinthians 13, the Apostle Paul paints a healthy and robust picture of what love really is and the purpose it serves. And when you hear the word love in here, I'm going to reread 1 Corinthians 13. And when I read it, when, when you hear the word love, know that when Paul uses this word love, he uses the word agape. That selfless, universal, God-like love. And he writes this. If I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Now Paul here in this section of scripture, he's lifting up this this profound importance of love. And look at his comparisons for a moment. He talks about, you know, if you're a great communicator, you can speak in the tongues of angels or men, or, or maybe you've got, you're just a really wise person. Or, or you know what, uh, you, you have this incredible faith and you pray all the time and you believe that anything's possible. Or, you know, you practice in outrageous, incredible generosity. Wow, look at your good works. Or, or wow, look at how much you've gone through, how much you've suffered, and yet you still persevere. Wow. He says all of that means nothing. If you don't have love, it means nothing. And so he says love takes this form because it doesn't take the form of great communication, wisdom, incredible faith, right? This is what love looks like. He says love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrong. And love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. I believe it's incredibly important to point out right here that when Paul talks about love in this passage, he correlates love with an action. Does that mean that there's no actual feeling with that love? No, absolutely not. There's feeling there, but there's also an action. Love takes shape. It takes a physical form. 
put it this way, have you ever had a friendship or a relationship where the warmth and the affection, that feeling kind of waned, or like in the moment because of whatever was going on, you just didn't feel it? Maybe you were in an argument, maybe it was a stressful time, but you knew like, like that feeling of warmth toward that person just wasn't there. And, and if you're, you're used to your emotions leading you, well, Paul is, is outlining for us here the actions that we can actually choose. When the feeling isn't there, we can choose actions to demonstrate, to bring forward the love that we know is actually there and is important in that relationship, no matter what we are feeling in the moment. Imagine, just for a second, if every time you and I had an argument with our spouse, child, friend, neighbor, we have an argument, we have a disagreement, there's, there's some heated words maybe, right? But we choose, instead of to respond in a way that is not patient, that is not kind, that is boastful, that does seek to harm the other person, right? Like, say if we chose the other things instead, we chose patience, kindness, protecting, trusting, and hope. Imagine the wounds that the argument might have made. Imagine what a balm for those wounds, those actions would be. As an example of this, um, there was, not too long ago, there was a time when my oldest son, he'll be nine in another week, and so nine going on 20, um, and, and he, he, uh, he really, really wanted something. And as his mother, I said, no, you can't have that because of X, Y, and Z. It's not appropriate. And in my no, then he's made it his argument why he wanted it. And I said, no, you can't have it. Yes, no, yes. It went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And soon, like, our voices are rising. And all of a sudden, my kid is, like, breaking out in tears. And I'm like, go to your room. And then, like, I go to my room, right, and have myself a little powwow. And, and so at the end of that, both my son and I, I mean, we were just at each other's throats because he, he dug in his heels, and so did I. And then we come out. And we're sitting at the, the top of the stairs um, on our second floor, and, and we're talking, and both he and I were apologizing to one another. We, we say, you know, we didn't treat each other with respect. We weren't listening. And we're, and we're you know, he's still in tears. I'm kind of in tears because we're having a moment, you know. And then all of a sudden, my oldest son, he sits down behind us, puts his arms around both of us, and he turns to us and he says, I love you guys. It's going to be okay let's hug. <laughs> and he pulls us in like this, and we start hugging. And I kid you not, I kid you not, just because of that, it was okay. We laughed. We actually laughed. We all laughed. And we're way more patient toward, and kind toward another. And, we, and that day, it's not easy as a mom, but I kept no record of wrong that day. <laughs> right? I remember the hug and the love more than the wrong. I don't even remember what we were fighting over. <laughs> Paul continues, love never fails. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, and when I became a man, I put away the ways of childhood behind me. For now, we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. 
Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully as I am fully known. At the heart of love is deep knowing. God loves you so much that he knows every single part of you. He sees you, all the good, all the bad, all the ugly, and he loves you. At the heart of love is deep knowing. God knowing all of you and loving you still, but also in return, us knowing God and seeing ourselves reflected in his eyes to see how he truly made us to be his sons and daughters. And Paul writes, now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. In John's gospel that we heard Brad read, it's right after the resurrection. Peter had professed to follow Jesus all the way into death, but then uh, that, that same night, he, he then proclaimed to deny knowing Jesus at all, and it haunted Peter. So after Jesus was resurrected, he sought out his disciples, he sought out Peter. And he asked Peter three times, do you love me? Now, did Jesus actually need to know the answer to that question? No, he already knew it. He knew that Peter loved him. I mean, Jesus is God with skin on. But Peter, he needed to see himself and know himself the way that Jesus did. And so that third time when Jesus asked, Peter, do you love me? Peter got upset. He says, why? Why are you asking me again? You know I love you. And what Peter needed in that moment, more than anything, was to see himself as Jesus saw him. To be reassured by Jesus, that his failure wouldn't define him, that his mistakes wouldn't define him, that the trajectory of his life wasn't based on what happened before the resurrection, but rather the trajectory of his life and his purpose and who he really is. It, it laid in the love of Jesus. Jesus' love for him and Peter's response of love back to Jesus. That's what set the course of Peter's life. And Jesus then invites Peter and all of his disciples into the way of love. And he says, follow me. Peter knew the love, he felt the love, and he chose to follow in the love. And you and I have the same invitation today. Jesus invites each of us to do the same, to experience and to know the love of God that is patient, that is kind, that seeks the truth, that doesn't boast, but instead rejoices in the truth and protects. And so this love, this love of God in Christ, please know that that is what defines you. Not our internal thoughts, not the hurtful words or actions of others, not the powers of this world, but the love of Christ made its mark on you and it is what defines you and this emotion that you feel when it is grounded in Christ wow let that love redeem you 
Let that love claim you and renew you and lead you in your life. To live a life of love by following in the way of Jesus that he set before us. It is a love that is selfless. He went to the cross for us. But he did it so that we could have life, full life, and life eternal. And when we follow in that selfless and sacrificial life, what we see is love that never ends. Love that is patient and kind. It's not envious, boastful, or proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. And it offers forgiveness even when it's hard. And love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. And when you can ground yourself in the love of Christ, you can ground yourself in a love that always protects, trusts, hopes, and perseveres. Last thing I want to close with is... Um, as we seek to embrace this emotion of love in all of its many forms that, and its goodness that we find in Christ, as we seek to follow Christ in that way, I want to remind us that we have a very real, a very tangible opportunity right now in the Fargo-Moorhead area to be Jesus' hands and feet of love in this world. You know, we, as um, we were approached this morning by Cass County and they asked to share with you that they do have a need. So if you're 14 years or older, able-bodied, we can serve our neighbors, love them by being Jesus' hands and feet to help fill some sandbags. I remember doing this in 2009. It was not easy work. And yet, it was profound, meaningful, and incredible work. And the love of God was definitely there as we were slinging sandbags. <laughs> so, find ways today to follow in Jesus' way and love your neighbor as you are called this day. Lean into that emotion. It's a good one. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I give you thanks and praise this day for your son, Jesus Christ. For this love that put on flesh, for this love that redeems, renews, and leads us on right paths. Help us to lean in where Jesus calls us to follow. Help us to lean into this emotion, to not fear it, but to embrace it and to surrender to it so that more and more people can know the love of your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.